Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by the guy who loves the Twilight Zone as much as he loves a good conversation about training zones, Coach Trevor Connor. That little uh, intro there should give you a hint at the topic of today's episode's training zones. There's possibly nothing more ubiquitous in all of cycling, and Trevor and I have lost count of the number of questions we've received from listeners that start with something along the lines of, I was training in zone four when... The truth of the matter is that we don't know exactly what you mean when you tell us something like that. And that's not because we don't know training science, but because... Zone four can mean a lot of different things. One thing is certain, training zones can have tremendous value. They provide guidance for training and a means of communicating with your coach or your teammates. If you're a fan of zones, this episode may also challenge you because zones have their limitations. They're not as clear cut as they seem, which may be why we and all of our guests today resist even using the term zones. What we hope to communicate is that there is no single zone model. That's because there is no perfect zone model. They all have flaws. What they're based on, FDP, VO2 max, or power duration, all have their issues. Nor can any model ever fully account for individual variation or even day-to-day variation within each athlete. As our guests will point out, they are rough and they have their limitations. That being said, if you use a zone model based on your physiology and use it as a guide, not as dogma, it can be a valuable tool. So today we'll dive into zones or levels or ranges or whatever you want to call them and talk about several things. First, what exactly a zone model is and whether it should be based on power or heart rate. The value of a zone system as a framework for training and more importantly, communication. Three. While there are many zone models based on heart rate, there are actually very few based on power. That's partially because Dr. Andy Coggin and Hunter Allen came up with a model that's been the standard. We'll talk about this model and why it was so important for each zone to have a name and not just a number. Coggin's classic zone model has seven zones. We'll talk about the issues with more or fewer zones, including Dr. Steven Seiler's three zone model and whether or not it's based on physiology. Five, what a zone model should be based on. Most systems create zones that are a percentage of VO2 max or FTP or threshold. We'll talk about the pros and cons of each and how, ultimately, both have their limitations. Number six, other limitations with zones, including not understanding what, quote, zone two means and the fact that just because you're training in a particular zone doesn't mean you're doing the right training. There are other factors, including volume. Finally, we'll talk about the eye levels that are discussed in the third edition of Training and Racing with a Power Meter. Eye levels are based on an athlete's individual profile, not just FTP, and address many of the shortcomings we'll discuss. I mentioned that book, Training and Racing with a Power Meter, because our primary guests today are renowned physiologists and coaches who need no introduction and who are the authors of that book, Dr. Andy Coggin. Dr. Steve McGregor, and a guest you've heard from on Fast Talk before, Hunter Allen. We also talk with local coach and Fast Talk regular, Colby Pierce, to get his opinion about zones. As a top-level coach figuring out how to best direct his athletes, he had a lot of great insight about zones and their limits. We also talk with 
Dr. Steven Seiler, one of the originators of the polarized training model, to get his take on training zones and why he often promotes a three-zone model. You may be surprised by his answer. Finally, we'll touch base with Sebastian Weber with Inside and a coach to athletes like Tony Martin and Peter Sagan in the past. We ask him his opinion on whether zones should be based on a percentage of VO2 max or threshold, but it quickly turns into a more nuanced conversation about the dangers of blindly following zones. So get ready to enter a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area we like to call the twilight zone. Oh, wait, wait, that's the wrong show. This is Fast Talk. Let's make you fast. Today's episode of Fast Talk is sponsored by Whoop. Chris and I are really excited to have Whoop on board, and this is not just because it's another device I get to wear around all day and completely geek over. You've probably heard me say on the show, and I certainly say this to every athlete I coach, the issue I have with the six-week training block is it might fit perfectly into the plan to say you should do a five-hour hard ride five Wednesdays from now, but the fact of the matter is I have no idea how you're going to feel then. It might be you have a bad night of sleep. You might have gotten into a, a fight with your spouse. Your kids might be sick. And that five-hour ride that looks perfect right now might be absolutely the wrong choice for you. We're all great at doing the training, but what we're not great is getting the recovery and knowing when not to do the training or knowing when to adjust. So that's where Whoop comes in. Whoop is a wrist-based strap that monitors heart rate variability all day. Whoop lets you know how strenuous your training was. It lets you know how recovered your body is. And it gives you indicators of the quality of your sleep. All this comes together into recommendations in its apps of basically how ready are you to train. It's going to give you the guidance to look at your training plan and say, that hard workout I have for today, that might have looked right a week ago, but today I need to adjust. Or it might tell you all clear, go out and tear it apart. So we're excited to have Whoop on board, and we hope you check them out to make the best daily training decisions. Today's episode is also sponsored by Oatroot. What is Oatroot? Well, it's not a cycling tour, it's more than a road race. As a matter of fact, if you're interested, check out last week's episode where we really talked about this type of event. It's a multi-day Grand Fondo-style event where everyone starts together each morning and you can ride with friends all day. You can indulge your competitive side on time sections if you feel like it and explore iconic cycling destinations around the world. It's kind of the best of getting in some racing while doing a fantastic tour. But Hoteroot takes it a little further with Pro Tour-style support on the bike and rider-focused amenities off it. Choose from a dozen events in 2019 in France, Italy, Norway, Oman, Mexico, and China. In the United States, there's still entries available for Oatroot Asheville in May, that's coming up pretty quick, and Oatroot San Francisco in September. Try something new in 2019. Try Oatroot. Well, it's great to have Hunter Allen back on the show, and I want to welcome Andy Coggin, Dr. Andy Coggin, and 
Dr. Stephen McGregor to the show for the first time. Welcome to Fast Talk, guys. Hey. Thanks. And uh, today we want to talk a lot about training zones and eye levels and the, the concepts surrounding those ideas, but we also want to be sure to point out that we're talking about these things because you guys have launched a new book, Training with Power. It's the third edition, correct? Yeah, third edition. We can. Uh, it's pretty exciting to uh, have this third edition. It's been a long time coming. The second edition was 20, yeah, 2009. We released it, and the uh, second edition you know, sold over 100,000 copies, and that's not even really considering what's sold internationally it's in seven or eight languages now, I think. Yeah, so um, that's pretty exciting. So the third edition, it's, uh, it's looking good. We're, we're sitting here at Andy's kitchen table right now. Andy and I are signing a 1,000 books, So uh, and then Steve is going to get to sign the 1,000 the books uh, later this weekend in Boston with us. Nice. That's a, that's a lot of signatures. That's some endurance, hand, <laughs> hand endurance work. <laughs> Andy's been complaining all morning long. My hand's cramping. More, more, more electrolytes. More goo. I've, I've been training, so I'll be fine. <laughs> Very good. Spending spend five, ten minutes every morning just writing your signature, getting that endurance up? Oh, no. A couple, couple hours. A couple hours. There we go. <laughs> Or I wanted to over distance, over distance training. <laughs> well, so I mean, and this is also you look at the editions of your book. Your your first edition was really nobody had addressed how to train with power. So your first edition was just saying basically how do you take this power meter, this this new device, and use it? How how do you interpret any of this information and make it in any way valuable? And please, after correct me if I'm I'm wrong in any of this. The second edition of the book. Is where you really brought in concepts like the the performance management chart, but there has been since the second book just this huge um, revolution, which which the three of you are mostly responsible for in the sort of metrics that we can get out of power. And it's you know I, I read through most of the book before this podcast, and you've really dived deep into all the, these higher level metrics such as stamina and and. Pmax and uh, FRC that just you know, certainly weren't in, in the the last two editions of the book. So it's really exciting to see what we're able to to get out of power data and, and the, the the sort of sophistication of the metrics. I'm sorry that wasn't the best yeah. explanation, but please tell us <laughs> kind of your your feeling about this third edition. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think that's that's exactly it. I mean, in ten years, there's been a you know a continual evolution of training with power, and we've learned more, and we've got more software has gotten better, and the tools that we have to analyze data have uh, improved, and so that's been a big part of it. Andy, you know, go ahead and chime in here. I mean, you were you were the one who uh, really started thinking about uh, some of these newer concepts and metrics and creating them. So, and if I can step on Andy's toes here real quick, and and I I do want to upfront say that you said the three of us were responsible. And honestly, I, I always have to tip my hat to Andy. Andy is really the, the the preeminent mind in power training. And to be honest, I'm a hanger on, you know, I, I, I run the coattails and, and I always want to be upfront about that saying I, a lot of the things I've done uh, in, in the world of uh, analytics for, for performance where, uh, you know, Andy is, is leading the way, especially in, in cycling and power. So um, I just want to make sure I got that in there and, and give him his due uh, before he goes on and, 
kind of talks about it a bit. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. You're checking the mail. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, uh, I joked at one point that uh, really what has led to the book, but it was more uh, power-based training 2.0. And that was the reinvigoration of the WKO software led uh, Hunter and I and uh, Kevin Williams, the programmer, and others to get together and really start taking a second look at what could be done with the overall goal being to try and leverage the data to make things more individualized. So power-based training 1.0 was a systematic approach, but more at, I don't want to say a generic level, if you will, uh, applicable to everyone for trying to provide people with the language, the lingua franca to you know, exchange information and ideas, et cetera. Whereas power-based training 2.0, uh, the attempt was to make things more individualized. One thing to show the influence that you've had. I mean, when you first came out with your initial concepts, when you first came out with your, your book, you really gave a lot of credit to, to previous research, such as the work by Bannister on heart rate, uh, and drew a lot from the previous science. But what I have found fascinating is when I was looking at some of these higher level metrics and started reading the research out there, they kept referring to your MFTP. They kept referring to your performance management chart. As a matter of fact, one of the research studies I, I read uh, literally had a screenshot of the PMC straight out of Training Peaks. So it's gone from you drawing heavily on the previous science to now the science is, is really drawing heavily on, on what you have created. Well, was, was it Einstein who said we all stand on the shoulders of giants? Um, but that it, it kind of comes back to uh, the notion of individualization in the topic today. Um, I like to, we have, we have pithy power proverbs that have been around for decades. One of which is they're called levels and not zones for a reason. And we'll get into that because I yep. know you're interested in discussing that topic in particular. But I actually stole the, and I've made no bones about it, I stole the term levels from a schema that uh, Peter Keene, Chris Borgman's coach, had put together, where he had laid out various training levels. And it resonated with me in particular because he had verbal description and sort of the sensations that an individual experienced when exercising at these different intensities. Uh, so I borrowed from that and I borrowed from other places. Andy, does it, does it make you feel old when you say pithy power proverbs that have been around for decades? <laughs> well, my kids, my kids make me feel old. <laughs> you go. I don't need you. <laughs> my, my nephew came out to visit in Colorado this weekend and I went skiing with him and I lost count of the number of times he was going, you know, Trevor, old people like you. <laughs> and then he would explain to me about what I didn't understand about being old. Right. <laughs> it's the beard. It's the gray beard you got going right now. That's, that's a big, uh, that's a big sign there we over go. the hill. So, well, now that we brought up all these, uh, you know, kind of hinted at all these great, very sophisticated new metrics you have in the book, we're actually going to focus on, I think, what was in chapter two or maybe chapter three and get right back to the basics and talk about this whole concept of training zones. And I will say personally, and I think you share some of this, I'm a bit of a, a zone skeptic. I hate it when I'm out in a ride and I hear somebody say, oh, I'm doing a zone two ride. And I'm the same as you. I don't actually 
use the term zones with my athletes, I landed on ranges uh, to kind of imply the fact that each physiological system has a fairly large range and, and they can overlap. But I guess the starting point is talking about zone systems generically. How would you define them? What is a zone model? That's you, Andy. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll stall for time. My original interest in dabbling in this area was actually piqued by a conversation I had in the infield at the Velodome in Trexler Town, where I overheard uh, John Berhue, who at the time was part of Adam Hodges Meyerson's coaching group, saying that he wanted to be one of the leaders in power-based training, and he wanted to convert their heart rate zones to power zones. And so I chatted with John a little bit, and then on my drive home from the velodrome, I started thinking about the fact that, yes, we have these devices out there. You've got people like Greg LeMond using them. You've got the uh, Australians, using, Australians using them. But there really wasn't anybody who was trying to present and package the information for the masses. You know, the elites who are in the business of winning medals and making big money had their knowledge, but they weren't motivated to share it. So I kind of set out to provide a way for others to benefit from the knowledge that exercise physiology could provide. So my original contribution were the original training levels, and it just kind of snowballed from there. But again, it comes back to, I, I always call them levels and not zones, because you do have zone-based training originates mostly from the use of heart rate monitors and other sports as well. You know, if you think about, of course, runners go more by pace and swimmers struggle with heart rate in the water. But nonetheless, you can, you know, use your polar heart rate monitor from the 1980s and you can prescribe training and you can say go out and train in this zone with the goal being to try and to elicit certain adaptations. And that kind of approach is not, it's not logical, as you were pointing out, exercise responses occur on a physiological continuum. But it's also not uh, as readily applicable to cycling, which I describe as a free range activity. You know, I mean, if you go out and run, you're running. If you slow down too much, you're walking and you know it. So you never slow down too much. But cyclists can, you know, go gangbusters up a hill and then they coast down the other side without turning a pedal stroke. Um, so the exercise intensity varies a lot more. You're far more dependent upon, you know, the terrain, the environment, et cetera. So, well, power output ends up being, you know, seemingly stochastic. It's not truly random, but it is highly variable, which is not, you know, other sports. Uh, so I kind of had that in mind, being a cyclist and calling them levels and not zones. Yeah, I, I was fighting against this notion that you lock yourself into some rigid constraints with respect to exercise intensity. Right, which I'm personally very glad to hear. But going back to the kind of that original concept of zones, it was just that idea that you're you're training different systems or having different effects. And I'm trying to talk very generically here um, at different intensities. So let's divide those intensities into zones um, to give some guidance on, on how you train. And I actually took some time before this podcast to go through a whole bunch of the various zone systems to, to see how they they break out and you can really see some of the earlier systems 
there doesn't seem to be a lot of physiological basis behind them. So for example, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, even though while well, you were practicing signatures, I was trying to practice how to say this. <laughs> you have the original carbonin zones, which are based on heart rate variability. But literally his zone one was just 50 to 60%. Zone two is 60 to 70%. Zone three is 70 to 80%, which I have to think that's just kind of basic rounding versus uh, I don't think specific physiological effects happen at 60, 70, 80, and 90%. Just, just or, or am I wrong there? <laughs> well, just if I could interject real quick. So two things. Um, one is I, the component is not based on heart rate variability. It's just based on um, a heart rate normalization score, um, which is a different animal. Um, but that's one of the limitations. Oh, sorry, that's, that's what I meant. Right. So and that's one of the limitations, inherent limitations to, to heart rate. You, you talk about 50 to 60% or 60 to 7% and rounding. You know, honestly, with heart rate, it doesn't matter. Um, heart rate is so, the resolution of heart rate is so low. And um, the, for lack of a better term, the accuracy of heart rate, which is not necessarily the correct term, but if you're, if the idea is to hit a, an intensity level, so if we were using power and we said, okay, we wanted to go out and do, and what they call them L3 or L4, L5, give them a level designation, just say a number. I want you to go and do intervals at 300 watts, right? If you give a heart rate target, then the heart rate target could vary by, you know, five, it could be right on the nose from a power, from a power for an, or a perceived exertion standpoint. Um, but it could be, you know, 20, 30, it could be 10, 20% off with regard to the target power. Because heart rate is a response; it's not the actual effort level, right? So, so, so the rounding errors in heart rate—you're right. <laughs> there, but there's so much, again, for lack of a better term, inaccuracy with regard to heart rate measures that it, it's kind of irrelevant. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so that's that's how how close you hit the target in heart rate. Eh, it's kind of beside the point. You're using heart rate. So before we go into, we'll, we'll, we'll cover your specific systems towards, towards the end of the podcast. So still talking now about just zone systems in, in general. What, in your opinion, makes a, a good zone system versus a, a, a bad zone system? And, and even at a higher level, do we really need a zone system? Well, from a coaching perspective, it allows me to prescribe workouts. Uh, and I think that's, that's the, the biggest point that, that makes a big difference for, for the athlete as well. And I think that's where you know, power training levels, you know, said, Hey, look, okay. If, if we're between this range and this range, we know that you're training your FTP. We know that you're training your VO2 max. We know that you're improving uh, one energy system or the other. And if you, you know, roughly adhere to some time components as well, then it's, you know, it's not a guarantee, but it's damn close to a guarantee that you're actually training where you need to train. Uh, and, and having a power meter and, and being able to quantify those numbers and say, okay, I need you to hold between 300 and 320 watts for five minutes to do this interval at your VO2 max, then that gives a very clear instruction for the rider to be able to do that and as a goal and also for something to, 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 uh, to execute. So from, from that coaching perspective, it, it gives clarity on how to coach an athlete and, and then also gives us confidence as coaches to say, okay, I'm training them in the right 
area, the right energy system to get the adaptation that I want. So we interestingly last week had uh, Sebastian Weber on the show. And, and so we'll actually put this in this episode, but we asked him his feelings and he said he never gives his athletes zones, but what he does is when he prescribes a workout, he tells them uh, what power range he wants them to do that workout in. So do you think that's sufficient or do you feel there's still a value to giving your athletes um, specific zones um, beyond the workout? It's six of one half dozen of the other is really what it boils down to is that if you're giving a person a power range and you're giving the person a zone, it, it's the same thing. You know, it's so depending on what the uh, if, if the zone or level range, if you will, um, falls between 200 to 260 and 290 watts for saying a quote unquote L3 workout or efforts. Uh, you give the person power range of 260 to 290 watts, done essentially the same thing, right? So to, to say you don't give somebody zones or levels, you really are. It's just you're calling it by another name. So basically what you're saying is he's still giving his athletes zones. He's just giving them one zone at a time with each workout. He's providing quantitative advice as to how they should execute the training session. Now, if you're dealing with one athlete or if you're dealing with six athletes, yes, I could sit there and tell athlete A, go out today and hold between 210 and 240 watts for six hours. And I could tell athlete B, you do 270 to you know 325 or whatever. But if you're dealing with more than six athletes, you need some systematic approach in order to aid in communication, to standardize things. And that's really what this is all about. I mean, Hunter used the word clarity. It's a, it's a system to standardize communication uh, with the recognition, of course, that physiological responses occur on a continuum. Physiological adaptations are a result of that continuum. Nonetheless, you know, humans have difficulty dealing with shades of gray. So we paint it as a bit more black and white. And we say, yeah, there are seven training levels uh, because it's a way of aiding in communication, especially with dealing with large numbers of individuals. But anyone who thinks that there's magic in training at a particular intensity, uh, you know, just doesn't understand. Well, first, they don't understand how the body responds to exercise, but they also don't understand what, uh, you know, Hunter and I and then what Steve joined in have been trying to educate people are about for the past two decades. Again, I come back to they're called levels and not zones for a reason. They've always been called levels. <laughs> yes. And I've, I've, railed, I've railed against this, you know, if you're not as – uh, been around as long as I have, you may not remember the era in which people were discouraged from going too hard in the off season because they will, you know, blow up their capillaries <laughs> and you'd go out and ride. You go, yeah, snicker, snicker. I hear you, Steve. And you go out and ride with friends. They'd be adamant. It's like, no, I have to, you know, get off my bike and walk up this hill because I'll blow up my capillaries. Uh, you know, that's ridiculous. That's not how people ride bikes in the real world. So if you overly constrain somebody's power output because of the way you're prescribing training, all you're doing is making the training less specific. Go back to the original system that I put out there back in 2001 now. Um, it refers to the average power either for the uh, interval, if you're talking about interval type work, or it refers to the average power for the entire workout if you were talking about you know, just a steady state endurance ride. Or if it's something like a tempo session, well, you know, you warm up and you cool down, but you focus on what was the average power over the hour and a half in the middle. Uh, 
But that doesn't mean that power remains within that range at all times. In fact, you know, the exact opposite of what you really should be aiming for because we don't go out and time trial everywhere, uh, at least not masculine races. And this actually goes back to what you were talking about with regard to the reasons for zones and, and you know, kind of the problem with zones is I, you know, Andy kind of cited a, a, you know, a popular notion from back in the day, which seems like only yesterday, but which actually was, you know, 15 years ago, um, blown up capillaries. Uh, but also I, I can think back farther than that, and, and which has kind of still been around for a while, is the notion of no man's land, right? That, that was a particular zone to stay away from. So there's zones you want to target and zones you want to stay away from. And actually, in actuality, most of what a lot of people would consider no man's land is actually the place that a lot of us spend or racers spend a fair bit of time actually riding their bike. So it's a zone you, or, or it's it's a an effort level that you actually have to be in at some point, whether it's in training to race effectively or racing effectively, right? Avoiding it like the plague, like it's going to cause some type of undue damage is, is really a misguided notion. And, and so the other aspect of, again, quote unquote levels or zones is that they, they give a standardization, a framework for people, because in the case of the book, when it first came out, um, without that framework, it's really difficult to describe things to people on a generally applicable basis. We can say generic basis, but is it generic? It's generally applicable, right? Is so what applies to one person applies you know, close enough for horses and hand grades to another person, but maybe not exactly, right? But but close enough so you can kind of work out the details yourself. The zones and levels just really provide a framework for people to use as guides. And the problem is a lot of people take guides and frameworks as gospel and it's not gospel you know it's you know training in a particular area zone level whatever you want to call it is not going to cause undue damage unless it's done disproportionately and then you get a disproportional adaptation and disadaptation in the other areas you're not training one thing i love about constantly interviewing people smarter and more experienced than me is you hear common themes expressed in almost the exact same wording that was certainly the case when we asked colby pierce his opinion about training zones. He talks about their value as a communication tool, almost verbatim to what you just heard from Dr. Coggin. But he goes on to explain why, even though they are a great guide, they shouldn't be used dogmatically. What's your feeling about any sort of zone model, just zone models in right. general? What are we talking about here? I think some of it comes down to semantics. Um, like, like I've heard you say, people say, I was in zone two. Well, what does that mean? And they can't really tell you. I think that zones can be a useful language we have to have a common language to discuss intensity with our athletes. And I think zones tries to assume that language. There are problems with that language at times and there are problems with that communication. So one of the biggest problems I have with it is, let's say I get this question a lot with my athletes. Let's say that I ask them to do five minute intervals. Ostensibly for most athletes who are relatively fit, a five minute interval is gonna be close to their VO2 max power, right? Depending on the recovery interval, just for the sake of argument, let's just say that it is. So. Most athletes are doing five-minute intervals. They're approaching VO2 power. They're at VO2 power. But there's a chicken-egg thing here because some athletes will say, okay, I want you to use eye levels or I want you to use whatever wizardry you're going to use with your magical laptop machine and tell me what power I should be doing, quote unquote. And my response will be, well, I don't want you to necessarily target a power on this day because particularly at this time of year, meaning March, these training days are about simply doing the work. So if we want you to do work at VO2 level on a given day, whatever your power is for that day, 
is what it is. I want you to ride based off your perceived exertion of what VO2 is. And on one day, because you might be carrying some fatigue, maybe that's 330 watts. And maybe on another day, it's 350. And maybe on another day, it's 360. But I don't want you to stop the workout if your first two five-minute intervals are 335 and your eyeballs are bleeding and you feel as though that is your VO2 level effort for the day. That doesn't mean we're not going to get constructive work for you to finish the workout. In fact, arguably, we could be getting really, really powerful benefit from you doing a 20-minute total load at that at that wattage. So I want you to focus on RPE. So I think where things get confusing is when people are training, when a, an athlete, a coach writes a, work, a workout for an athlete, an athlete is training, are they really trying to achieve a certain zone on power, i.e. output during a workout? Or are they registering their own internal exertion level of that? And then when you add heart rate into that equation, which is arguably very important, things get, athletes can get really confused. So then that leads to the situation where you, Trevor, go to an athlete and say, oh, um, how was your ride the other day? And they say, I did a zone two for five hours. And you say, what does that mean? And they're like, I'm not really sure. Because at the beginning I was doing 240 Watts and then about midway through I was down to 200, but then my heart rate went from, you know, mid one twenties up to mid one thirties. And then by the end it got kind of warm. And then, you know, we were going to stop for water, but I didn't know the guy who stopped and I, the other guy wasn't really eating. So, you know, I didn't feel like I should eat because eating is cheating. And so by the end I was doing 190 Watts and my heart rate was floating towards the mid one forties. You know, and then you look at their RPE. So we've got three different models going for how to track their zone that they were in. Which one are we paying attention to? So it comes down to the definition of the semantics. It comes down to clear communication with your athlete. What does the zone actually mean? Which, which, which metric are we using to track that zone? Are we using power? Are we using heart rate? Are we using perceived exertion? Three different things. I think you're really touching on an important theme that we've heard time and time again. And, and Dr. Coggin, even in the, the discussion with him, he brought this up that, as you said, these zones are, are good for guidance and for giving a, a common language. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if you want to train your best, you're not going to get there by simply saying, well, my zone four is X and I trained in that wattage. You have to take responsibility and say, I don't care that I was supposed to ride at 300 watts. Yes. This didn't feel right today. All right. Yep. And know how to adjust. Know it's how to adjust just it. more yep. complex than yes. that. Ultimately, power and heart rate are simply metrics we use to to really see what's happening inside the athlete, their adaptation and their effort for the day. That's And power is not the goal. I have to reinforce this with my athletes all the time. Like, I don't really care how many watts you're doing, man. If yep. you're a competitive athlete, I want to see you get results. I want to see you win the races you want to win or have the best performance on your day of your race that you can have. If you're doing 289 watts or 410 I can give a shit. Let's return to the show and hear why Dr. Coggin landed on seven levels for his classic levels. I was going to say, I'd like to circle back to the question you asked originally and what, you know, what represents a good system. Um, uh, I'll presage another question I know that you wanted to address, and that is what you use as your anchor point. So I would up front say it makes perfect sense from a physiological perspective that your anchor point has to be your metabolic fitness. But with that said, one of the issues that I had to take into consideration with the original levels was, you know, what is the right number? Recognizing that it's all shades of gray and that subdividing things into ranges or regions or zones or levels or whatever you want to call them uh, is simply a mental convenience. Well, how far do you go? If you set up 15 different levels, that better reflects the continuum, but it's rather unwieldy. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a three-zone system, 
and you're an advocate of polarized training, well, uh, if you think you're never going to train in zone two and that everything should be you know, 65% of VO2 max and below or really hard, well, then three zones might be sufficient because <clears throat> it serves the needs of your, I'll call it bias, as to how people should train. I was trying to develop something that was flexible enough that it could be used by any coach, regardless of their philosophy about how people should train. I was trying to be agnostic with respect to training uh, philosophy and also trying to think about, well, how complex can it be? How simple should it be? And ultimately, I decided seven was the magic number. It's a prime um, number, by the way. <laughs> uh, uh, I could have been right. I could have been wrong. But that's what I settled on because it seemed to me that that was the minimum number that, were, that was needed to really capture the way people actually do train. And that you could then classify various workouts and they would all, all or almost all fall into one of these seven uh, levels. I mean, you mentioned um, Dr. Seiler's three zones and, and the polarized approach, and we've brought that up a lot. And the one thing I, I did like about his, his three zones is it is purely based on physiology. Basically, you said there are um, two thresholds, so that defines three zones. Now, we had him on the show, and he did say that's all based on on oxygen consumption, and you max out at uh, VO2 max. So when you're dealing with heart rate or, or VO2, there's nothing above VO2 max. So he said there's actually really kind of four zones, even on that simple model, because when you're dealing with something like power, there are intensities above VO2 max. But you're taking it a step further, and it sounds like you're saying this is a combination of both looking at physiology and um, looking at the way people train. And so you you have... I'm looking at your classic levels, and, and I love that you didn't just call them zones but or levels. You you gave them names. But you have active recovery, endurance, tempo, lactate threshold, VO2 max, anaerobic capacity, and neuromuscular power. Do you want to talk a little bit, and maybe this is too big a question, but do you want to talk a little bit about why those distinctions and, and those term, those terms? Yeah, I think it was useful to have names along with numbers because it uh, aided in communication. You know, why are you training at this intensity? What is your goal here? What are you trying to achieve? Are you exercising at a relatively low intensity uh, because it's part of active recovery, either recovering from interval workout or it's a recovery session, you know, the day after a hard race? Uh, are you training at... Uh, uh, at an intensity where you're attempting to increase your VO2 max, or are you doing sprints to try and increase your neuromuscular power? And then the one that uh, ends up being like, what do you call it, is a little bit into uh, Steve Seiler, also at uh, University of Texas at Austin grad, by the way, um, yeah. which is like, well, what do you call level three? Well, now it's uh, it's tempo or fart lick, which is really almost borrowing from the running world kind of thing. But again, it was... Uh, trying to be able to communicate with people. You know, if somebody says, go off and do intervals at this power output because it's level four for you, what am I trying to achieve here? Well, you know, okay, we're attempting to improve your muscular metabolic fitness, AKA your lactate threshold, AKA, you know, whatever you want to call it. I, would, I, do, have, I do have to push back mm -hmm. though. I disagree with the claim that uh, a three zone system is entirely grounded in physiology. If you actually go back in the literature, I mean, the whole notion of a lactate threshold is as arbitrary yes. 
as the notion of training levels or training zones because the blood lactate response to exercise occurs on a continuum. It's a mental convenience to come along and say, oh, here's a break point uh, because it sums up everything about a person in a single number. Their lactate threshold is at 97% of VO2 max. And I can say that, and Steve, as an exercise physiologist, is raising his eyebrows because that one number is so high that he's going, doesn't sound kosher, right? But in point of fact, if I wanted to fully convey the information about that individual to another scientist, I would present a graph of their blood lactate response against their exercise intensity. And you have to look at all the points on the curve. So the notion of lactate threshold is really a mental convenience. The notion of zones or levels is a mental convenience because our brains have a hard time dealing with the complexity all at once. So if you go back in the literature, what you find is there's a very close correlation between uh, the exercise intensity across individuals. Uh, the exercise intensity that elicits a blood lactate concentration of four millimoles per liter, OBLA, will correlate with the exercise intensity that elicits a blood lactate concentration of 2.5 millimoles um, or three or six or whatever. Uh, so, uh, you know, to say that there are two thresholds, it's a mental convenience. Everything's on a continuum, and the effective endurance exercise training is to shift that entire curve around. So I actually love hearing you say that. I'm looking right now at a, at a review that I grabbed just for this conversation that was written by uh, uh, Drs. Fodd and uh, Meyer in uh, 2009. It's titled Lactate Threshold Concepts. And they actually, even though in, they detailed this two-breakpoint model in this review, I have in big and bold a, a part in the study where they say that, that it's an old model, this, this idea of a shift from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. And they say, they even say, and here's what I have in bold, it's a transition. So the term threshold may be misleading, which is exactly what you're saying. And, and not only that, so if I can interject real quick, if, if we back up, Again, I'm not sure how old you guys are, but uh, but having been around for a while, um, there was a huge dilemma in at what we'll say at the turn of the century, if you will. That hurts me to say that, but um, that the the nomenclature and the definition of the threshold, and I can't even remember if it got it in the book. I, I made an allusion to this in in the book when we were writing it because I make this point all the time. There's a re review paper I use in class when I teach at the graduate level, that's a review paper from the early 2000s that, that talks about the, the scientific definitions for threshold. And at that time, there were 30 plus scientifically validated definitions for a threshold, right? And if I had somebody come into my lab and say, and I have this all the time, people come in and say, I want my lactate threshold test. Which one do you want? Oh, well, what do you mean? What do I want? I want my lactate threshold. Well, I've, there's, as Andy alluded to, there's there's a zillion different definitions of the threshold. And I can give you one, but it's going to be different when you go down to the street to another lab, right? So the problem has always been the notion that there is this magical, quote unquote, threshold that, that defines some things and is magical at above and below. And and one of the real real values, I think, that Andy contributed, aside from some other stuff in the system that he developed, is the notion of the functional threshold, which there's really not a lot of debate about the fun, and it's really become pretty standard in the nomenclature in training science that 
not only training science, but in practical training as well. When you, when you go on a ride with somebody and you talk about a threshold, again, if you're talking about a threshold 10, 20 years ago, who knows what you're talking about? Right now, everybody pretty much knows what you're talking about when you talk about your functional threshold, right? And, and it's, 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 it's standardized some definitions in training science, which is real problematic. 20 years ago, we used to talk about this, the problem with using lactate threshold as a definitional term because there was no consensus on what it was. Right. The functional threshold has become much more standardized and is much more readily available to to use as, again, a standard metric as a point of reference. I was going to say, that's one of the points back when I used to do what Steve does now, and that is tour around and, you know, uh, give the exercise phys lectures for the coaching certification program. One of the points I always made was that really coaches don't have to know that much about exercise physiology. If you want to go off and break new ground, if you want to be in the position to evaluate, you know, off the wall ideas, yes, it is very helpful to have a saw, you know, a background in that area. But a coach wears so many hats, and someone could be a phenomenal coach because they're a great motivator, or they're great organizational skills, or they're a great tactician, or they can teach bike handling, or whatever uh, of the many aspects that contribute to performance. And they could have a, you know straight up undergraduate, uh, black and white, they think they understand exercise physiology, stick to the tried and true and be extremely successful. So you really don't have to know that much about human physiology and in point of fact, trying to understand it is where the problem arises because the applied world gets so confused where you have people talk about my lactate threshold is 140 beats per minute. It's like, that's not possible, right? <laughs> you know. So the, the idea of functional threshold power was to try to cut through all of that noise and say, forget about lactate. You don't need to think about lactate. You, know, you don't need to think about the physiology. We all know that there's a certain exercise intensity that we can maintain for a pretty long time. And if we go a little bit too hard, we realize that the gorilla is going to jump on our back sooner rather than later. And if we go well above that intensity, the gorilla is going to jump on our back even sooner. I mean, how else do athletes uh, figure out how to pace themselves in time trials, right? They don't do that because they understand exercise physiology. They're responding to their own sensations. So the idea of functional threshold power was just to embrace that and say, you know, forget about lactate, forget about the physiological responses. Let's just focus on what we're measuring, power output, and relate it to something that is intuitively obvious to the individual. And I like hearing you say that. We actually talked about that with, with time trialists, that very good time trialists, they don't need a number. They know the feel. And they can, they can sit there right at that functional threshold, even if they, they didn't have a single screen to look at. Yeah. This came out where they had, had cyclists do 30-minute uh, time trials and, uh, in a lab. So I don't know if that's my uh, deadly sin number six or deadly sin number <laughs> seven, depending on how motivated you think they were in a lab environment. Uh, Etc. But it was a better estimate of maximal lactate steady state power than critical power testing was, which just reinforces. It's like let's just trust the athlete and their sensations, and you know, leverage the practicality of now I can measure my power in the real world uh, and come up with a way of utilizing that data and leave the lab behind. But I will say I'm I'm glad. I was reading your explanation of FTP in your new book last night and, and really liked some of the things you addressed that, um, unfortunately, people have associated FTP too much with one hour power and that it's more complex than that. 
in just my personal bias, I think it's very important for people to come up with an accurate FTP because I can't tell you how many athletes I've seen do a 20 minute test or look back for their best 20 minute power in the last two years and say, oh, that's my FTP because I really like that number. And then they're unable to do any of their interval work because they're nowhere close to that number. And plus, as, as you pointed out, 20 minute power is not FTP. Uh, Tim Cusick had a name for that, Vanity FTP. Yes, thank you. <laughs> people, are always, people are always going to you know, pick the number that flatters them the most. And in fact, I will say that back when I was fit and racing, I would say my FTP was 300 watts, when in fact, you know, the best I ever averaged in a 40K was 298. <laughs> so even the inventor of FTP is taking liberties and, you know, <laughs> rounding up. <laughs> but it is to the nearest five watts, which, again, is one of the points I always tell people. It's like when they say that their FTP is it's 281.16257 watts. Wow. This makes me roll my eye. You know, we have variability in human performance. Uh, I always tell people it's, you know, the nearest five watts is as close as you can get. And there's also the measuring error in the power meters themselves. Yeah. I had this unfortunate conversation with an athlete who was trying to convince me his FTP was 260 and was asking me, he was doing five minute intervals and asking me why he wasn't getting through them. And I'm sitting there trying to explain to him, that's because your FTP is in 260. And he was just insistent. Yes, it is. And I went, what's the definition of FTP? And he goes, it's your, the power you can do for one hour. I'm like, can you do five minutes at that power? No then that's not your FTP. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a big leap between five minutes and, you know, yes. about an hour. A little. A little. <laughs> it probably wouldn't be fair if we didn't give Dr. Seiler a chance to give his take on zones. While he does focus on the physiology, you may be surprised by his rationale for starting with a three-zone model. I think we want to achieve the same thing. My goal, every time I talk on these podcast obviously it's not to enhance my research career it's to um, because I think it's worthwhile to try to put this research into practice and help people avoid making mistakes and I think the most you know risk if you talk to engineers about risk assessment they say risk is equal to probability times um, yeah, consequence. They, they say risk is equal to cons probability times consequence. So you can have a very low probability, but if the consequences are very high, then it still may be an unacceptable risk. Have you heard this terminology? Yeah, no, I have. So and in, my, in, my, in my way of thinking, this is kind of where we are with training is, okay, I want to try to help people avoid these situations that have kind of high probability of happening and fairly significant consequences. And the most common, the most high probability for endurance athletes is not that they train too hard on the hard days. It's that they train too hard on the easy days. And, you know, that, and we've talked about this a bunch of times. And this is yeah. where the zones come into play. And, and I don't really care how you calculate the zones if as, as long as it Make, as, as we ultimately achieve that distribution that we've been talking about. And so what I want to, the answer I want to give to you is basically the power zones are fine as long as they're anchored in physiology. And certainly you and I know, and there are, we know that there are not nine distinct zones, like and as Coggin and as Hunter Allen are saying, it overlaps. But 
But if we're going to be able to use these, we have to have some kind of anchoring to physiological markers, to something that we, you know, that makes sense physiologically. And if we do that, then everybody can, can roughly speak the same language. But if we don't, or if things slide out of control, you know, and that's my big concern with FTP is that depending on how it is tested, it can be, it, the, the typical error, as you know, is that it tends to be overestimated. Right. And, and then if it gets overestimated, it will tend to have downstream effects on all of these zones that are calculated. And then that will have long-term effects on the whole training process for people. So, so that is my concern. I love power measurements. It's a wonderful tool. And as long as we can calibrate it, then I'm all for it. I mean, I, I almost can't get off my Zwift bike because I want to have power all the time and I don't have power on a, you know, on my uh, outdoor bikes yet. So, so, so I get it, you know, uh, I'm just concerned that we, we lose, we throw out the physiological baby with the bathwater here. Yeah. So if I understand you correctly, your, your reasoning for proposing this three zone model is it was a very simple model based on physiology. You're not saying that we should necessarily stick with just those three zones. You, you can have a five or a six or a seven zone model, but stay grounded on that physiology. Yeah. And, and, and perhaps build it up, build it up step by step. Cause a lot of the athletes that I meet, they are just, you know, these, these amateurs, they are out of control. They don't really have any kind of intensity zone control. So, I would want to start simple with them and say, all right, well, let's, let's, you know, let's learn how to think green, yellow, red. Let's learn how to really be consistent that low intensity sessions stay low intensity that you, you know, that you don't let them slide out of control. And then as they get control of that and, and the three zone model is something that they, they can use effectively, then we can start to, be a bit more nuanced in you know where within zone one do we want to do our bread and butter low intensity work where within zone three do we want to try to accumulate minutes you know that's for me the next step if that makes sense yep yeah no that makes a lot of sense and that might be where some of these uh models like uh what what uh, hunter and, and dr coggins come up with right so Again, and, and that's what I want to come, you know, I'm saying, I, I don't, I'm not trying to say they're wrong. I'm just saying it may be that, that go on the way there, ultimately, if that's the ultimate goal is to be very sophisticated and have really good control of these zones, that we may have to start with fewer zones and then, and then learn our way up. Because I, I find that a lot of what these endurance athletes need is just um, education and discipline. They have to they have to feel it and, and develop the discipline for and know where they're at and how to stay there or how to avoid drifting upward, you know, during sessions. How to avoid getting pulled into a, a threshold workout when their intention was to stay low and easy for three hours. Now, so that, that's my answer, you know, to your question uh, in terms of, of, I don't think there's right versus wrong. I just think that we have to maybe sometimes use a, a progression based on uh, you know a learning process and and that's point one then of course point two is is that those power zones are fundamentally connected to some physiology 
And so we need to kind of make sure that lines up the way we we expect it to, and then we have to be able to teach it correctly. Andy and I actually did our PhDs at the same university. Really? He was a few years ahead of me. So, so what's kind of fun is that, uh, you know, back in the day, the hour of power was this term that, that these guys at the University of Texas used a lot. It was Ed Coyle and Andy Coggin, and, and that, was, that was one of their big studies was a 60-minute test. I, I think you can basically say that a lot of Andy's ideas around the functional threshold came from there. You know, it was the 60-minute trial. And that was your school as well? Yeah, I mean, it was the same same place. He was from the same place. He did a lot of work with a guy named Ed Coyle. Yep. You, I'm sure you've read some of his oh, stuff yeah. on different things. And and, uh, and so I came in a few years after he finished. But, but everyone knew, you know, because Ed would teach in the physiology courses and talk about some of those studies that, that Coggin had been involved in. And then Ed kind of moved in as carbohydrate metabolism was one of his big things. But... Yeah, so that that whole group, you know, I was really pumping out a lot of stuff. Uh, but but the hour of power, you know, just that term, I can remember I was talking about that, you know, particular term, and then and then a bit later came maximum lactate steady state, and you know, so it kind of all morphed into it together on some you know, in different ways. Dr. Seiler did mention that we should start simple, and then as we understand training better, we could look for the subtleties. So let's get back to the conversation and talk about how, in some ways, Dr. Coggin's classic zones are just finding that subtlety based on a combination of physiology and how riders train. We're, we're going to get into eye levels in a minute, but talking about your, your first four levels, even, even your, your classics, um, we had just talked about the perhaps that three-zone model of Dr. Seiler's is, is a little simplistic, but... I actually personally feel there, there's a lot of similarities here. I, I think even Dr. Seiler would say when you talk about training below that aerobic threshold or the way he measures that point where your lactates start to click up, it's not all the same. You're training, if you're training right at or right near that aerobic threshold, that's very different from just noodling at 100 watts. And so I look at you have active recovery and you have endurance that would be Siler's zone one, but active recovery is just really slow and easy, where endurance is pushing yourself a little bit right near what, what Siler would, would call that, that first uh, threshold. And, and again, you have it as a level or a range, going back to your point of it's not a point. It, it's not a very specific this wattage or this heart rate. That, that there's that general range that we know that it's very good to train at where you're pushing that aerobic threshold. And then I, and you can please tear me apart after I say all this, but your tempo is very similar to his zone too. And then again, you have a lactate threshold range that goes to your point of there's a lot of different thresholds um, that, that vary. But we know that training somewhere in that range can be very beneficial. So you have a lactate threshold range that would be, uh, you know, kind of the high end of Siler's zone two and the low end of his zone three. So I like that it, it's still based on some of the same physiology, but you address the issues of threshold is not a point, and zone one and these various zones probably need a little more uh, distinction. Uh, they, they certainly do if you want to have a system that's agnostic to training philosophy. Whereas if you are a firm believer in polarized training, 
and it's sufficient to say, well, we have a three zone system. And then you just tell your athletes today, you're going to go do zone one training and they know to work toward the upper part of that. Right. But that three zone system doesn't work then if you had a mythical coach. And I say mythical because I don't know of anyone who adheres to it, but they put up a straw man, you know, threshold training model. Right. Um, you know, how, how does somebody who's training philosophy uh, diverges markedly from the polarized idea, apply a three-zone system? Does it actually meet their needs? So I think that, you know, there, there is a difference in what, actually it's not Steve's three-zone system, it's the Norwegian way or whatever. Um, but, you know, there's a difference between three-zone and polarized, which are wedded together, and uh, my training levels, which are at least their attempt to be agnostic to training philosophy. A coach could use my training levels and prescribe only zone two. See, now you have me saying zone. Sorry. Prescribe <laughs> only level two and only level five workouts, right? And be doing polarized training. But you're not using a three zone system. You're using my original seven levels or whatever. Which actually comes back to, you know, distinguishing between there's the system you use to describe and prescribe the training, and then there's the actual training plan. You know, you can do nothing but level two and level five, and you're not doing polarized training, because I've done it alternating. So instead of a 80-20 uh, ratio, I'm doing a 50-50 uh, ratio. So I, I trademarked that as bimodal training. Um, <laughs> So yeah, you have a system that describes and you use for prescription, and then here's the actual prescription. You know, how much, how many workouts do you do in a at a particular intensity? How long are those workouts? How are they sequenced within a week and within a month and within a year? And then this, you know, I now defer to experts like Hunter and Steve who actually coach people because I'm no coach. I've never been a coach. Never wanted to be a coach. All I was trying to do is put out a tool that would be flexible enough to serve the needs of all of the people out there. Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop, a performance tool that is changing the way people track their fitness and optimize their training. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that pairs to their app that provides analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest by getting to know your nervous system through heart rate variability and quality of sleep. Automatically track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous training was on your body and see even more data like average heart rate, max heart rate, and calories burned. Get optimal sleep times based on how strenuous your day was and track sleep performance with insight into your sleep cycles and stages of sleep, sleep quality, and sleep consistency. I can tell you by having worn a whoop myself that it provides fascinating data and can optimize the way you train, recover, and perform. And the sleep stuff is incredible. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout to save 15% and optimize the way you train. So I think what, what we're going to cover next is just talking a little bit about 
some of the issues with the standard zone models that I think we all share. And I think that will then take us really well into talking about your eye levels, which I felt very elegantly addresses some of these issues, which is why I think we need to quickly discuss the issues. And if you don't mind, I'm going to quickly start with one of my biggest pet peeves is when I'm out on a ride with somebody and they say, oh, I'm doing a zone two ride. Whenever somebody says that to me, I go, what does that mean? And they turn around to me and go, well, you're a coach. You know what that means, right? And I go, well, I've, I've read what the explanation is behind it. But my question is, you're the one doing the ride. Do you understand the purpose of that ride? And what I find is when people talk about zones, they don't really understand what they're trying to accomplish. So that's one of the reasons I love that. And even in your classic zones, you give it all names that, that helps people to understand the purpose. But I quickly, just to give you an idea, before we, we this podcast, I took a bunch of the classic uh, zone systems and took the zone two and and put the heart rate ranges because most a lot of the zone models only give heart rate and just to give you an idea u.s cycling their zone two is 114 to 126 beats per minute the british federation is 121 to 140 and then at the top end we have uh, joe friel system which is 141 to 153. so usa cycling zone two and joe friel's zone two um, there's a 15 beat per minute difference between the, the top of the one and the bottom of the other. And I'm not saying either one is wrong. It's just if some two guys are going out and doing a zone two ride and they're using different models and they don't know it, they're, they're doing very different things. Yeah, I wish I comes back to power-based training, not heart rate-based training, but even whatever your uh, metric is. You know, it comes back to having a systematic approach. You know, I you periodically see people who want to, uh, you know, follow the training program of X using, you know, the zones of Coach Y. And that kind of mixing and matching never works. Uh, so maybe this is a point I would actually bring Hunter back into the conversation before he falls asleep. Um, what guidance do you give to your athletes if you tell them, you know, go out and do a level two ride? Well, I mean, the, you know, from, from that perspective, I mean, the goal of that ride is to improve their endurance and stamina. So, you know, I, I very rarely actually prescribe just go ride for five hours at level two. You know, I, I, one, I think it's kind of boring and the athletes, unless they're a pro athlete, you know, they're, they find it is boring and even the pros do. Um, so what I'll say is, okay, hey, I want you to go and ride in between two and three, uh, and 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 you need to do you know four or five hours because otherwise you're not actually improving your your endurance and your stamina, and that's that's really the ultimate goal. Uh, my big thing is I see people who are doing level two rides and they're not riding long enough. It's like oh okay, well I'm going to go do a level two ride for two hours. It's like well. Wait a minute. That, that's not going to do any. It's not any kind of overload at all, and they're not really going to improve their endurance for two hours. Um, you know, the same kind of thing happens with. Uh, you know, one of my my concerns always is these athletes who are um, not riding easy enough in their rest days. I mean, you use your power meter as a governor in a rest day. It's like okay, stay underneath fifty six percent of your FTP and don't go more than an hour and a half. You know, it's like, well, gosh, you know, if you're riding three hours or four hours underneath 56% of your FTP, that's not a rest day. <laughs> that's a lot of time on the saddle. 
So, uh, and I love that you address that in the book when you bring up the question of is there a no man's land? You said no man's land is not a, an intensity. Any intensity can be appropriate. It's it's the combination. So you use the example that exactly that example of just because you're riding in the active recovery range or level, if you're going out and doing four hours, that's not a recovery ride. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And so I think that's where that's where you you have to 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 come back, and that's why I love you know the, these Kagan classic levels and. Uh, you know, we're looking at a particular, you know, what's our purpose, you know, and, and that's why it's so they're so easy to explain. What's the purpose of doing this? And then make sure we adhere to a few principles around it that allow us to address that purpose. We hope by now you see that using a zone model, any zone model, has its limitations. There are issues with what the zones are based on, whether you can truly say a zone system is physiological, how they are used, and so on. We asked Sebastian Weber, who coaches athletes like world champion Tony Martin and is the mind behind Inside, about basing zones on FTP versus VO2 max. But as the conversation progressed, Sebastian really hammered home that all zone models are rough and have their issues. Basing zones as a percentage of FTP, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of the classic approach. I mean, take... FTP as a substitute for any kind of lactate anaerobic threshold whatsoever. If you go 40 years back in history of sports science or training science, everything was based on some kind of percentage above or below um, a certain kind of threshold concept. So that's a that's a pretty classic approach, so to speak. It's it's a quite okay to do concept, uh, I would say. Uh, because it gives you some kind of approximate idea on the intensity. Going back to what you said, having you know having a zone based on VO2max or something, VO2max is a classic example because if you think about basing training intensity on a VO2max, this is what you will find on almost every scientific paper, right? Almost every scientific paper which is dealing with exercise training adaptation to a certain training stimulus or whatsoever intensity is always described or most times described as percentage of your to max and why this might be a better concept partly is that if you're trying to increase your aerobic capacity or more precise aerobic power performance you're talking about increasing vo2 max well, so it was interesting because, you know, Dr. Coggin, when he came up with zones based on FTP, he addressed that and said, your, your VO2 max is relatively set. What's important to know is how, what percentage of your VO2 max you can sustain, which is different for everybody. So he says here, this is because although an athlete's cardiovascular fitness, that is his or her maximal oxygen uptake or VO2 max, sets the upper limit to his or her rate of aerobic energy production. It is the individual's metabolic fitness or lactate threshold that determines the percentage or fraction of this VO2 max that can be utilized for any given period of time. So that's his argument for why zones should be based off of, uh, of threshold versus VO2 max. Well, so he's not saying basically here, it's not saying that the VO2 max is fixed. This is why I've asked this would quite... You know, this would have quite surprised me. No, so that's kind of the dilemma here, so to speak, right? The dilemma we are looking at here is that 
for a practical application, if you base things off FTP, you get an idea on how long you might be able to sustain that. Even though I think it's a, this is a very, very rough way to do it, or maybe not the best way to do it. So from a practical application point of view, writing things into a training program in terms of how long do you write, how long do you exercise in a certain intensity, basing things off a threshold model. Yeah, again, it's a classic approach and it's a valid way to do it. The problem though is that if you only know your threshold, you have no idea on which percentage of VO to max you're exercising. And the most common problem you run into here is what people call when you when, when you do trainings, like what people call VO to max intervals, right? I think there's this common sense that, you know, some three, four, five whatsoever minutes intervals. Um, and then people base this off percentage of FTP. And you can open up these training textbooks and it say, I don't know what, 115 to 125% of FTP. And the problem here obviously is that if you base everything off FTP and you go, let's do a view to max interval and let's for everybody, one size fits all, 100% of FTP. Somebody, one athlete might be somewhere in the ballpark of 105% of VO2 max. And another athlete might be in the ballpark of somewhere like 85% VO2 max or something, roughly, right? If you base it off FTP, you have no idea on which, you know, how much you're actually triggering or loading the system if you want to take it this way. And then let, let me comment real quick on the idea that FTP or any other threshold concept, any percentage, is a good way to use for training to use this for training zones because it informs you about how long somebody can sustain an effort. I'm not so happy with that actually, because also your fat max zone or also your carbohydrate combustion, which is really the bottleneck when it comes to the question how long you can sustain a sub threshold effort. Yep. If you if you assume good hydration and stuff, then the bottleneck is really the carbohydrate combustion. And there is absolutely no quantitative proportional correlation or link between your threshold power or percentage of threshold power and how much carbohydrate you, somebody is using. So there it falls short again. So it falls short in terms of you don't know how much you load your aerobic system and you don't really know sub-threshold how long you can sustain it because you don't know your substrate utilization. So again, it's it's a it's a 40 50 year old concept and it has a right to exist but it's a very rough way to do things it sounds like you're saying you don't like zones because there really is no ideal way you know every athlete's unique and you, you just need to understand their physiology and then say we, we want to work this side of your physiology so i'm going to give you a specific workout with specific targets to to work that side and and to just give you a zones and say, if you're in this zone, you're training this system is overly simplistic. Right. And let me give you this and, get, let, and let me give you one practical example, which is, which is a common issue, at least for uh, triathletes and, and cyclists in Europe. Take your weekend warrior age group rider, for example, right? Who maybe trains whatever, three, four hours in whatever you want to call this base zone, long, slow distance. So this is your longer ride of the week. It's no problem to, for the intensity of this kind of training, to use whatever 70% of FTP, 65 to 75% of FTP is like a common recommendation, right? And this works. The problem is now, again, pretty common over in Europe, then this, this kind of athlete 
goes to a training camp. They go to Mallorca, they go to Spain, they go to Italy for two weeks, and they are riding every day like five hours because they can. They have the time to do that. Now, the same intensity doesn't work anymore. It is per definition zone whatsoever. I, I even have no clue what the, what the number of this zone is. When they're, when they're now riding five hours average a day or whatever, even if right. with a group ride and stick to that zone, they're blowing up after three or four days because the energy expenditure at this intensity is too high to be su sustained for day in, day out, four or five hours riding. And where this also falls short, when, you've, when you turn to the professionals, and here's my prime example, you take, again, let's say 70% of FDP as your base training, long, slow distance training zone, right? And let's say you have a 75 kilogram amateur rider, whatever threshold, 300 watts, let's say 70%, which means that his base training zone is 210 watts. That's a nice pace. That's a nice speed normally. And it's easy. There's no, shouldn't be a problem to do this for three, four hours. Now you take the same concept of a training zone and go to any World Tour team, take a World Tour rider and apply the same concept. And here's my example. Let's apply this to Tony Martin. He is approximately 75 kilograms. His threshold is way above 400 watts. 70% of a threshold of like 430, 440 watts. This is about 300 watts. Now you go to Tony Martin and tell him to ride five, six hours, 300 watts. I tell you, Paris-Roubaix is approximately six hours, 300 watts. Right. right. If you do this, everybody will laugh at you. We'll just, just kick you out. It's not working. And this is because it's, it's, it's a rough estimation. And it doesn't tell you, the percentage doesn't tell you that the carbohydrate for example, the carbohydrate expenditure utilization at 70% of threshold is way too high for people to sustain that. And just one, one quick comment on that. Uh, historically, these percentage zones come from lactate profile, lactate threshold testing, and those origin in running. So something like a four millimole threshold, this is 42 years ago this year, and taking a percentage of four millimole was used in runners. And they run two hours per day, maybe two and a half or three, right? So it's not a problem. And then, for example, what, what happened in Germany is they were trying to apply it in the early 80s to cyclists and everybody blew up. <laughs> and you know what they did? They didn't, funnily, at this time, they didn't change the, the zone. They didn't say, oh, let's not do 70%, let's do 55% or something. No, they just lowered the lactate value for their <laughs> threshold <laughs> and stick for 70%. <laughs> but, but the result, but the re no, it's true. <laughs> it's true. They said, okay, it's not working, so let's stick with 70%, but let's, let's, let's take three millimoles instead or resting lactate plus 1.5 or something. But anyway... Um, it's it was a proof that it didn't work it didn't work for five six hour rides right. right let's give dr Coggin the final word on vo2 max versus fdp and then talk about his eye levels which try to address some of the concerns that sebastian raised you had discussed uh referencing threshold instead of vo2 max and your question was you know what defines a good uh system i think it's been crystal clear since the 70s and certainly by the 80s that it's muscular metabolic fitness and not vo2 max that's the most important determinant and therefore it makes the most logical sense we actually did a study when i was a phd student with 14 cyclists all with the same vo2 max but with a six-fold range in how long they could maintain 88 percent of vo2 max which then linked back to their blood lactate response to exercise, which is an indirect indicator of the rate at which they're using muscle glycogen. 
you know, that was the one thing that was interesting to me as a, as a physiologist is the fact that, as I described at one time, there isn't a unique fingerprint of VO2 max on the exercise intensity duration relationship. I mean, yeah, we can estimate VO2 max and WKO4 with uh, uh, reasonable precision, but it requires uh, certain assumptions to be made because it's not like it just jumps out that, oh, look, after five minutes you fall off, right? And yet we always say, well, VO2 max is such an important determinant of, you know, exercise responses, et cetera, that if you want to have a high, be an elite athlete, you need to have a sufficiently high VO2 max. I mean, we know it's critical. It sets the upper limit for aerobic ATP production. And yet it doesn't have a uniquely identifiable signature on the exercise intensity duration relationship. Well, I think you made um, this point, but I agree with this hundred percent that we put a big focus on VO2 max because it's so heavily tested in, in research and in the labs. But once you get out into the field and, and into races, it, it's rarely a, a major factor in, in racing. Yeah. Well, of course, you could also say that about almost all the physiology, right? Fair enough. I mean, it's how much power you produce and, you know, when you apply it tactically and who's first to cross the finish line and who cares about the exercise science. Geeks um, <laughs> like us to come along after fact and try and understand things, but the, uh, the racers don't care, nor do they necessarily need to care. <clears throat> well, I, I don't know. Ex exercise science tells me that if I'm racing with Connor, I want to get in a breakaway with him. <laughs> as long as I can hold on to Andy's wheel, I want to get in a breakaway with him too. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know if this is in any of the science, but if there's a measure for big dumb horse that takes people to the finish line and gets his butt kicked, <laughs> I, my, my rating on that is amazing. <laughs> So let's kind of dive into your eye levels and start with um, you know, one of the things you address that I think is a, the other big issue with zones is people get this notion into their, their head that uh, as soon as you go two watts or you change your, your power from 230 watts to 235 watts, which takes you from endurance to tempo, that all of a sudden you're training a different system. And I will tell you, I actually got into this email debate with a listener who got quite upset because one of our previous guests suggested training at 97% of threshold and that's not threshold anymore because you're at 97%. And, and how could you suggest that? Well, it's that's not. sweet spot training. And I like the fact that in your eye levels, you said it's, it's, it's not like you suddenly go from 290 to 291 and you're training different energy systems that it's a continuum. So maybe we start there. Well, yeah, it comes back to it. It's a continuum. What is the magic number? of subdivisions that is not too many as to be unwieldy, uh, but is enough to at least try and pay lip service to the actual complexity. The, my original answer was seven. Uh, the original levels work great from FTP and on down because at those intensities, it is muscular metabolic fitness that is the primary determinant of performance. Once you go at higher intensities, now other factors begin to play a role. And while we can say that on average, 120% of FTP would correspond to VO2 max, or near enough that if you train at 120% of FTP, you're targeting your VO2 max. There are individuals whose super threshold ability is exceptional. And those are the people who can tolerate and knock out the intervals at 150%. Or conversely, you can get the diesels, 
the triathletes who, you know, they never train above uh, FTP. And when you ask them to do so, they're very limited and they struggle to do even, you know, say six by five minutes at 110%. So it was the uh, supra threshold variability between individuals that the eye levels were intended to address. And they leverage the power duration model in proprietary ways to try and target uh, specific responses and hence adaptations. Uh, I personally have a, have a bit of concern even with the eye levels in that it's getting rather unwieldy because how many are there now? 13? No, I think nine. Huh? Nine? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, prime nine. Number. Yeah. Nine. And, There's and, nine. And what, seven, one, of those, one of those is Hunter's fault because Sweet Spot <laughs> is now a formal level to serve the needs of coaches. And in fact, I remember having that conversation as we were boarding a train in Boston where Hunter was lobbying for a Sweet Spot level. This is back in the original levels day. And I'm telling Hunter, look, there's no reason you know, that you can't prescribe your work, your sub, your athletes to train at what you think of a sweet spot. We don't need a formal level, but he finally got his way. Um, <laughs> it took 10 plus years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, nine's getting up there. It's getting pretty complicated. Well, um, and, and the other point about that too, is that, that I think the whole notion or the whole uh, kind of theme behind this podcast was the strengths and or weaknesses of zones, a zone approach, right? And and I think that gets to the point when, when the when the right. inventor of the levels doesn't even know how many levels there are. I think that kind of attributes the level, the magnitude of importance he ascribes to the actual levels themselves. Again, it's it's a practical convention to convey notions um, that are more standardized, but everything happens on a continuum. And whether it's nine or fifteen or three is just uh, a practical consideration more than anything else. And yeah, it's getting to be a lot, isn't it? But I do like the fact that you kept names and you can look at the titles and understand what is it that I'm trying to train here. So, you know, your, your, your level four is FTP and that's really focusing on your, your threshold strength. Level five, you basically say now you're, you're high enough above FTP that you're, you're improving both your, your functional reserve capacity, but you're still also working your, your FTP power. Um, so you can you can look at these. And yeah, if you look at the number just at the numbers, it gets unwieldy. But if you look at the names, you can really understand this is what I'm trying to train. This is what I'm trying to focus on. Yep, agreed. And back to that, you know, back to my original point. You know, why do we have these things? Because it really gives clarity. It, it helps us as coaches and also as athletes to, you know, again quantify when we're there. And we're in the right area of training to train that specific system. And it's, it's you know, before, right, we didn't know, right? We had heart rate and, and rate of perceived exertion, and, you know, and, wow, gosh, you know, if you just went by heart rate, well, maybe you didn't sleep that well last night or you had a glass of wine or maybe you had four cups of coffee. And, and you know, so you think that you're, you're in the right area uh, based on your heart rate. But we didn't really know. Were you truly training your VO2 max? And and maybe you weren't. Maybe you were training. You're still your FTP. Uh, and so I think that's where like having these these things really help us to understand. Okay, and quantify. This is this is the right place for you to train based on whatever your training plan, your coach says, you whatever your your goal itself, the purpose. We actually had a five minute segment at this point in the show where Dr. Coggin. 
explained the math behind eye levels and the limitations of the model. But in that explanation, he simultaneously showed just how smart he is. It also put all of my nerd bombs to shame. Thankfully, when we had Colby on the show, he gave us a great summary. So the next one, we just did a podcast yesterday with uh, Hunter Allen, uh, Dr. Coggin, and, uh, and Dr. Steve McGregor. Oh, wow. It was it was That's fun. a good one. It was a good one. I'll have yeah, to listen it's a good to it. Because um, they're coming out with uh, power uh, training and racing with a power meter. The third edition is coming out. So okay. we're able to. Cool. So we Great. talked with them about training zones. And they, like me, are not big fans of the term zones. So mm-hmm. they use their levels. Right. But wanted to, A, get your opinion overall about zones. But in particular, mm-hmm. are you familiar with their eye levels? Yes. And what are your thoughts are there? So... Well, addressing eye levels first, I've, I've used them with a lot of my athletes or rather I've seen if there was a correlation between my athletes, uh, the ability for them to make power for the given per- predicted durations of the eye levels. And in, and the short answer is in some cases, yes, there's a very good correlation. In some cases, it's pretty poor. To be fair, the athletes in which it doesn't really predict their eye levels accurately are athletes that are sort of off of Coggins, I'll say spectrum. And he looks at things uh, from a very threshold heavy or FTP standard of perspective. And these are athletes who are more track focused. Granted, they're endurance track athletes, not, you know, pure sprinters, but still, so there should be some crossover. Um, And there are a few other little particularities to these cases, but I think it illustrates the point. And I'm pretty sure Andy said this himself, you know, all mathematical models are invalid over a large enough domain. The question is, what is their domain of validity? I'm pretty sure that's more or less a direct quote of Andy. So what he's saying is, when we make a mathematical mathematical model of someone's power zones or predict what power they're going to get benefit from over a certain duration, which is what the eye levels are, then that's a model. And in some cases, that model might work, and it might work really well for the bell curve of athletes, but inevitably, we'll find athletes that fall outside that curve. So just like any model these guys are using, whether it's the PMC, which is the mother of all models, or eye levels, uh, you have to look at those models with a bit of skepticism and you have to understand what exactly are you modeling? What are the limits of that model? What are the limits of the domain? Back to the show. So the other thing, maybe we need to give a quick explanation of the power duration curve. But the other thing I find really interesting about this is a lot of the older zone system, even your classic zone system, was based purely on percentages of FTP. Um, with the, your eye levels, you are looking at somebody's individual um, power duration curve and, and coming up with these levels based on the shape of their curve, which gives a lot of individuality. Pretty much all modern training software has some variation on this power duration curve, but it's this nice, smooth curve that starts you know, at the very short duration. So the, the one to five seconds, you have very high wattage. And then depending on the rider, somewhere around five to 10 seconds, it starts to decline quite rapidly until you get to about a couple minutes where you, you start plateauing at, at what is your FTP. And that's actually in the, I know in WKO, what they use to predict MFTP. And that stays somewhat uh, level out until about 30 minutes to an hour and then starts to decline again. And everybody has a, and I'm just, sorry, this is all yours. I'm, I'm just... Um, Kind of summarizing what what would you had what you explained very well in the book. Everybody has a very unique shape to their curve. So I'm a time trialer, which means my one to five second power is pretty bad, and I don't have that steep a decline. 
where a sprinter would have a very, very high one to five second power, uh, but then decline quite rapidly. And, and so everybody's unique. And what I found absolutely fascinating is with your eye levels, the way you're figuring out your, your levels is looking at the deflection points in that curve, which is unique to each individual. Is that uh, an accurate summary of it? Uh, that's that's uh, an accurate description, yes. It is very, uh, I would say, pragmatically based, although I don't know if doing nonlinear least squares curve fitting with a you know, custom-built uh, uh, solver is pragmatic, but you know, even the terminology, functional reserve capacity, well, if we're going to talk about a functional threshold power, well, functionally, you know, we don't need to worry about what the physiology is behind it. It's just that, you know, when you go above threshold, the duration you can maintain it becomes progressively more limited, and we can mathematically pretend that it's a gas tank. It's a capacity, right? It may not actually be, but nonetheless, the mathematical model describes it pretty well, so we treat it that way. Uh, you know, one of the things I picked up along the way from doing mathematical modeling with isotopic, stable isotopic tracer stuff, you know, is that, you know, mathematical models are theoretical constructs that may or may not have a basis in reality. It's a mathematical model. It provides a very good description of the power duration relationship, but that doesn't mean that it's reality, right? Fair enough. Uh, so you, you don't ever want to lose sight of that fact. So then what are the benefits or advantages to basing your eye levels off of that uh, modeled power duration curve? Uh, it comes back to what you were, you, know, you were describing the curve. Um, you know, the primary determinant of performance, primary physiological determinant of endurance exercise performance is muscular metabolic fitness. So if you take everybody's power duration relationship and you express their power as a percentage of FTP, what you find is people converge to a remarkable degree. I mean, yes, uh, you know, some people may differ in their stamina, and though they do a little bit better than somebody else over five hours, even though they might have the same uh, FTP. And other people who you know, don't have the same stamina may fade a little bit more. But from a 64,000 put, put point of view, uh, there's amazing uh, similarity. Uh, between individuals. And that's because the determinants of performance at five hours are very much the same determinants of performance at one hour, right? Um, right? But at the same time, you now move into the shorter durations, and now this is where you see people diverge. So as you move from, you know, below five minutes down to two minutes down, as you were saying, you know, one second or whatever, now you can see remarkable differences where some people can only sprint at twice their sustainable power and other people can sprint at you know 12 times their sustainable power so the eye levels are an attempt to target or reflect i should say the differences in performance ability at short durations and uh it wasn't possible in the original levels to do that and in fact if you go back to the very origins of the of the first seven levels Level five is 106 to 120% of FTP, and level six is 121% plus with no upper limit. And level seven isn't referenced FTP at all, it's just sprint all out, right? Right. So, in terms of the range in power, you know, level six is, and seven are like, you know, enormously wide. And so the eye levels were an attempt to try and uh, narrow those 
and subdivide those. Uh, an example, my wife was a pursuiter. When she was training for the pursuit, she had phenomenal resistance to fatigue at you know her threshold intensities. Uh, one of her coaches along the way gave us standardized workout, you know, flying, you know, rolling start, flying two kilometer repeats at race pace. Well, two kilometers only takes, you know, two minutes and change. And because it was a flying start, there's no neuromuscular demand. It was, the, you know, the efforts were over before she really had depleted more than half of her FRC. They were too short to say that they were training VO2 max. I mean, it's like it was a no man's land in for her in terms of a workout. So needless to say, she could do flying 2K repeats at race pace, you know, year after year and not get any faster. <laughs> Whereas for somebody else, uh, a time trialist, to do a flying, you know, 2K repeat at, you know, your pursuit pace, if your pursuit is more aerobic, you know, a minute and a half into it, you're hurting. And you are getting a physiological strain that's going to lead to adaptation. So again, this, this was the point of the upper eye levels, trying to take into consideration intra-individual differences in the shape of the power duration relationship at uh, supra-threshold intensities. And going back to your point of you feel there, there might be too many zones, just train everybody to be like me because I think my five through seven are all the same, which is barely above threshold. <laughs> really simplifies it. Well, and you, might be, you know, and you may be one of those people who the eye levels doesn't, doesn't really matter for, right? You fit perfectly within the clock, cog and classic levels, you know? And so then it's like, well, just use those, you know? Or, you know, it may also depend on one's competitive goals. If you were a triathlete, Ironman, they don't need to worry about anything above level right. five. Not, not, uh, relevant to your chosen event right well at the end of the, every show we like to give our uh guests a chance to take all of their life's work and summarize it in 60 seconds so let's start with you steven i know you need to uh jump off the call soon what are your takeaways from this conversation today uh takeaways from this conversation well considering i've talked to these guys ad nauseum for the, about the past 25 years uh not much but the i think the point is that um, people often use levels or zones, whatever you want to call them, and misunderstand them to be rigid, rigid constraints. When at least in, in this group of people, I know Andy and, and Hunter and myself, we think of them all collectively as guidelines and 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 uh, things to help uh, clarify, as Hunter said, and, and target things as opposed to rigid constraints for the most part. Hunter, what do you think? Well, you know, I mean, again, kind of back to my point, I mean, I always have the coaching hat on because that's, that's what I do. And I, I think that, that uh, these training levels are, are really genius. Um, and it's something that, that Andy, you know, has incredible insight on and, and they changed the world, right? I mean, they, they, have, they have actually changed the world of cycling in a large way. Uh, and so the, the profound uh, nature of that is, is incredible. And it's allowed thousands of coaches to uh, prescribe these, to describe these, to use them. Uh, it's allowed millions of athletes. I mean, heck, I was in China in November, and uh, I taught uh, four different seminars and, and for a month touring around China teaching training with power. And so there's a whole new 
millions of cyclists in China that are learning about training with power and understanding training levels. So um, I think that that uh, it's it's a great tool. It's a it's a great tool for all of us to improve because ultimately. My job as a coach is I want my athletes to be successful. I want them to achieve their goals. And this is one of the tools that I use to help that make that happen. May I ask how many, uh, how many books did you get signed during this uh, recording session? <laughs> Not enough. Not, Not enough. enough. <laughs> Only maybe 100. <laughs> oh, okay. Andy, um, Andy, what would you say is the, are the biggest takeaways that you'd like listeners to, to leave with today from this discussion? And I started the clock, Andy, so let's see if you can do it. Uh, I'm going to agree with Hunter that, yes, it's uh, been great to put ideas out there and see what a large impact that they have had upon so many people, hopefully a beneficial impact, to the point, interestingly, that many people assume that I'm an applied sports scientist when, in fact, I'm somebody who chases NIH dollars doing exercise physiology, not sports science. But it's thanks to Hunter, you know, looping me in, I've been able to give back to a sport that I was involved in before I was even involved in exercise physiology that I've loved for now uh, 45 years. So... I want to say the take-home message here is I want to thank Hunter. Oh, I, I razz him a lot about you know sucking me into this stuff, but uh, if it weren't for him, I'd be you know some old man off rant- ranting on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you don't rant on the internet? Not anymore. <laughs> As Steve said, we've been knocking around together for about twenty-five years. So. <laughs> And Trevor, do you have any closing remarks? Uh, I get to go last today. Uh, my closing remarks are mostly what they said. And just to, to remind our listeners, we are talking with the people who first figured out how to train with power, how to make those numbers valuable. And, and so many of these things that are just common language now, they weren't at one point common language. And you're talking with the people who, who came up with these concepts. So thank you for, for sharing with us. And, and the only thing I'm going to add to our particular conversation today is just that idea of don't just say I'm going out and doing a zone two ride. Uh, whatever levels or zones you use, make sure you understand them. Make sure you understand the purpose. Um, otherwise, it's just numbers and it can take you off course. Thanks so much, guys. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velnews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews. And on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Vela News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Dr. Andy Coggin, Dr. Stephen McGregor, Hunter Allen, Colby Pierce, Dr. Stephen Seiler, Sebastian Weber, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.